0: Monica Hadley and Caroline will not be joining us today, but we have a really fascinating book to talk about today. Um, something that's different, I'd say than anything that we've ever um, talked about before on writers voices. and in fact, um, when Leslie, the uh, publicist who sent me this, she said, you know she she's spent decades as a literary publicist and this and has rarely, find something truly novel. And she said excuse the pun. So <laughs> and this is truly novel. So our guest today is Kat Mustatia and the book is Voidopolis and it is a You know, one of a kind book, really. It is a hybrid digital artistic and literary project in the form of an augmented reality book which retells Dante's Inferno as if it were set in pandemic ravaged New York City. And we're going to explain what that really means as we as we go forward. And Kat Mustatia is a transmedia playwright and artist known for language and performance works that enlist absurdity, hybridity, and the computational uncanny to dig deeply into what it means to be human. Her TED talk about puppets and AI takes a novel approach to the meaning of machines making art. And Kat is a is from um, Romanian, or she was born in Bucharest, Romanian, Ukraine, and Ukrainian parents, and she immigrated with her family to the United States as a child in the eighties, and lives and works in New York City, which is obvious if you read this book. Welcome to Writers' Voices, Cat. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so, tell us a little bit about um, how this book came to be.
1: Um. The original telling of the story actually unfolded on my Instagram account. Uh, started in July of 2020, smack in the middle of the pandemic. Um, and I started doing this thing. I, um, I wiped away the many years worth of Instagram posts that I had, uh, just deleted them all one day and <laughs> created created a kind of uh, stage on which the story was going to unfold, which was my feed. Um, and I started retelling Dante's Inferno uh, kind of chapter by chapter, post by post, and, but doing it in a very specific, peculiar way. I, um, I was using um, language that uh, didn't contain... The letter e, so I use no words that contain e <laughs> um, and uh, i I had thought of this you know like writing with constraints was a was a thing I had been interested in before, but the specific notion of of doing it for this project uh was something not even technical it was actually emotional because i felt that the story i was telling was very much about loss i really felt as if i was witnessing you know a, a, a loss all around me like literally people disappearing uh off the streets of new york and disappearing into hospitals and not coming back out uh but also daily life kind of disappearing and, um, the, the, the idea to write in such a way that the letter E was, dis- was, was missing. <laughs> was banned. <laughs> uh, yeah, was a, was a way to literally embed the sense of loss into the language itself. Um, and, um, you, you know, and, and, and something really interesting happens when you're, when you're avoiding the letter E. Uh, every past tense verb, the regular past tense verb in English, uh, ends in ED. And so you, you don't really have access to the past. And it felt as if uh, that caused the story to have this strange time warp, um, which also was, in fact, expressive of how it felt to, to live through that time where we were kind of in a suspended animation. Yeah, and, you know, we're not
0: that far past that. You know, we're, re- we're talking at the end of 2023. So we're talking, you know, less than four years from the beginning of the shutdown. And yeah. there's, there's almost kind of a mass um, forgetting <laughs> going on. Yeah. Of, of what it was, what we were doing and what it was like. And when we were in the middle of it, I remember thinking, will things ever be the same? Will it ever feel normal again?
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm, yeah. you know, and in some ways they are kind of back to the way they are. and But in other ways, or the way it was, but there's always that lingering doubt.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a way in which we've all been affected, even if we've uh, resumed or, our
0: lives, or if we're know? in denial about it, which I think <laughs> a lot of people are. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, I think you see it in these subtle ways. These uh sometimes someone who's a little bit, seems a little bit traumatized about like doing social things or uh, people who have long COVID or, uh, you know, kids who missed an entire year or two of, of their school and their social life. Those are pretty subtle. They are. Um, and but they're there. Yeah,
0: they are. And particularly with the kids, it's, you know, I, I don't, I feel like all of the kids have been deeply affected. And I know I've talked to college professors who've t- who say how lasting the impact has been on the kids that are going to college now because the ones who missed the last few years of or the last year of high school or a year of high school and that it's that they are not the same as kids were before. There's The changes are still are right. definitely lasting. Um, Yeah. yeah. And now you being in New York City during this time, that was sort of the epicenter for, you know, we were reading about the the morgues, the uh, the um, uh, refrigerated trucks with bodies and um, the hospitals expanding out into the parking lots.
1: Yeah, they set up a temporary hospital in the middle of Central Park. That was really eerie. Wow. And see,
0: we didn't have that here in Iowa or in Texas, or is the two places where I spent the, that part of the pandemic. And I just, it's hard to imagine what it was like for you, but Voidopolis does a pretty good job of, of describing it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, so you, you wrote without the letter E. But there was also <laughs> other aspects to this that um make it kind of an unusual project. And one was the fact that it was in
1: temporary. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um I I I had the sense uh when I started this project that I, I didn't necessarily want it to be something that lived forever. Um, I wanted a way of, of talking about that moment and what was happening in that moment. But I also had the intuition that maybe once it was over, I wouldn't want this like heavy story, uh, the burden of carrying all those memories. Um and, and maybe I would just want to be able to, you know, delete this when, it, when it was over. <laughs> and, uh, and so I did. I, I, I told everyone, you know, I'm doing this, this sort of performance-like project on Instagram, uh, using social media in this peculiar way to tell a story, but I'm going to delete this when, when I'm done telling the story. So it is, it is this thing of the moment and that's it.
0: So at some point, though, even though you did do that and you did delete it on Instagram, how did it segue into becoming a book? And then we'll talk about how you how even as a book, it has an aspect of being temporary.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, one one thing that happened, which was was rather delightful, uh, was that I, I won a literary award, uh, for the project while it was unfolding on Instagram. I won the arts and letters unclassifiable, uh, prize for literature, <laughs> um, which I, I was very proud of that, of this unclassifiable work. I felt like, oh, this is a, this is a prize meant for this project. <laughs> um, and the other thing that was rather delightful was I was only about 12 posts in. So, you know, I like to joke that I was, you know, the first author I've ever heard of who uh, won a literary prize for a work they hadn't finished writing yet. Um, and um, and then the next thing that happened was I actually won a publication grant. And the um, the foundation who gave me that grant were very, you know, open about they said, you know, uh we can consider publication on Instagram as publication. So, you know, feel free to just uh, to, to do that. But if you'd like to do something else that is considered a publication, um, you know, let us know. And so I, um, I started to feel like I, I, I would like to somehow document this temporary publication that was happening on Instagram in the same way that, you know, uh, an exhibit, has a catalog uh which isn't exactly the exhibit, but it's it's a kind of trace of of the fact that it had happened at all. So I had been toying with the idea of perhaps there's a book form um, which wouldn't necessarily be the direct translation of this Instagram project into a book. But what if what if uh you know I use something like augmented reality um, as a way of uh, kind of gesturing toward the fact that this original story had been told in a digital format. So that seemed compelling. And why don't I use the book format as a way of leaving a trace of of uh, kind of documenting that this had happened at all on Instagram. That was my animating thought. For what the book could be like, um, but but there was this uh, this funny thing you know augmented reality as a form is uh, is an additive process you know it's you're literally layering on uh, a digital layer onto reality, and um, that bothered me a bit. I felt like mm, you know, this project is fundamentally has the idea of loss. Uh, embedded into every component so how do i make augmented reality also be something to do with loss and so i i i came to this unusual format for for an augmented reality book um and it is the following the book is made to disappear um, what you get when you're, you know, buying this book is a physical object, you know, a book like you're used to seeing a book and, um, and the images and words are, are decayed on the page. So your your the printed pages have a kind of obscured, um, text and imagery, which you can only read with an augmented reality app. Um, it's pretty easy to access. Uh, you just need a, a smartphone or a tablet, and you don't even need to download an app. You can just uh, navigate to a website um, um, on, on the on the web, and um, and then you then you can you know using that app you can actually read the the material, the story, and the images, but. Only for a limited time <laughs> because because then the the digital components in the app start to decay over a period of of some months, and uh, eventually they don't work anymore, and so you you're left with this illegible book object um, <laughs> um, which decays over a period of a year now I should say. Uh, that the book does reset every year. It resets on July 1st, which is the day, the date that I started telling the story. Um, So it's a meaningful date. Um, And then it resets again and you're able to read the book. But then it starts slowly decaying over the following year. And so you do have an opportunity (laughs) to read this book if you miss it the first year. Uh, but, but, you know, your book is, is doing this, you know, it's a kind of like digital performance, you know, it's like decaying for you in front of you. <laughs> so,
0: so when I, um, you know, got the book recently, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, I, I started looking at with the app and I found I could read the pages, but it was kind of hard to read. It wasn't clear, so that's because it's in the process of decay.
1: That's right. And that's
0: if right. I try again on July 1st, it will be a lot easier for these old eyes to actually <laughs> read. <laughs> Now, I also, yeah. I also you know, it's sort of like the words, or they weren't still, it was sort of moving around. And I couldn't tell if it's because my hand wasn't completely still holding the phone over the page, or is that part of the,
1: is that intentional yeah. too? It's a little jiggly, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. as a... Yeah. And it's a little bit unstable, you know? Everything's just a little bit unstable, like a, 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 as, a, as if it's all about to fall apart. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
0: Now, let's talk about the photographs, too. Um, when you did these posts on Instagram, were these the photographs in the book the ones that you used on the Instagram posts?
1: Correct. And uh, likewise, um, I wanted the imagery to kind of match this idea of having loss embedded in in them. And so what I would do is take stock photos of New York City and um, kind of digitally wipe away the people um, using these. um, There's a lot of apps out there uh, for like correcting your photos. And there's this function that almost all of them have of uh, of uh, kind of wiping something off. At, you know, like when someone photobombs your perfect picture of a sunset, you can kind of like take them out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I would I would take that function and uh, kind of misuse it, you know, um, to and then and, and I think there's a real art to to using that in a way where it feels like there's still a human presence after you've wiped the person away. Um,
0: It's sort of, yeah, yeah, there's like a um, kind of a ghost of a person almost.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you're too successful wiping the person away, then, you know, then it's sort of boring. It's a still life. (laughs) Right, right, right. um, But I I started using these tactics of, uh, you know, Images of someone uh, holding up an umbrella. So when you remove them, there's this like eerie umbrella in midair holding itself, you know.
0: And when you remove them, does the background, if the app fills in the background of where it's. It does, yeah. Okay, but maybe not exactly the way it should be, or not exactly. Exactly, Yeah. 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 Okay. All so you're right. seeing
1: these ghostly traces, yeah
0: now, I also um noted that in the Instagram post, you didn't tag locations because mm-hmm. you because they are so specific, and um but in the book, you chose to because you could be more generalized with the location, you did sort of tag each one with the location,
1: yeah. Yeah. So in Instagram, you have to really, uh, that functionality on the app forces you to be super, super specific. You have to have an exact geo point in space. And and, um, it seemed a little bit contrary to my very often confused narrator who would sometimes be like, where am I? you know, mm. and who was experiencing this disorientation. So I didn't want to use that function on Instagram, although I, I I did think it would be quite interesting to think about where the narrator is geolocated because uh, you know, they do travel uh throughout the city, um throughout the all the boroughs. Mm. Um And so I, I decided to just forego that for Instagram. But then, you know, it came time to do the book and it was a really delightful thing to play with location, right? Because there would, there were certain moments where very clearly the narrator is standing in front of the vessel, this landmark, um, you know, um, what do you call it a sculpture a okay. large <laughs> building like object um, uh, and uh that was very clear so you could exactly geotag the vessel new york city manhattan um and then other times you could you know in a geotag be be as vague as and confusing as as the narrator was vague and confused you know you could you could say you know somewhere between queens and manhattan or somewhere between queens and brooklyn you know in some nether region <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you know the city pretty well sounds like
1: i think so i've been i've been here a long time <laughs> been here since college
0: <laughs> you're listening to writer's voices and our guest today is kat mustati and the title of the book is voidopolis so let's also like Delve into this whole Dante and Dante's Inferno, um, kind of, you say this is a retelling of it. So for people, not everyone is actually, believe it or not, familiar with, I mean, I think everyone's heard of Dante's Inferno, but not everyone actually knows what it, the structure of the, of that is. So it's an epic mm-hmm. poem. It is part of the Divine Comedy. And it's has thirty three verses is that
1: correct? yeah thirty three can, thirty three cantos so like little chapters I would say,
0: okay, and how it, it's give us a little more sort of uh the the uh high level synopsis of the story and the characters in Dante's mm-hmm. Inferno and how you use those.
1: Yeah, so um you know, in the Inferno, Dante is uh finds himself lost um and uh finds himself on the precipice of what turns out to be hell, literally hell. Um and uh is guided through this gruesome experience of of walking through hell. Um by the poet Virgil, the great poet Virgil, um, who acts as his, you know, guide both uh, spiritually and, and also like very practically, um, kind of advising him on who to talk to and who to stay away from. And uh, the entire poem is is Dante and Virgil moving through the circles of hell. Um, there are nine circles, and each circle has its own kind of terrible punishment for the types of crimes that people um you know did while they were alive and uh the imagery is 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 really like once you've come across this imagery, you'd never forget it <laughs> <laughs> there's uh there's some like extraordinarily imaginative gruesomeness. Um, there's people walking around with uh, their heads severed and they're carrying those severed heads in their own hands, like little like lanterns. Or there's people who, um, you know, are transformed into bushes. And when Dante accidentally like plucks a leaf, they start they go, ouch, you know, and start bleeding <laughs> oh. because it's actually their body. And, um, you know, there's people like literally rolling around in their own feces i mean it's it's really pretty gruesome imagery un- completely unforgettable, which is why I think Dante has remained uh you know at the level of fame all these centuries um But what's so extraordinary about this poem is that all of these gruesome um Images are rendered in the most beautiful Italian <laughs> verse imaginable. <laughs> wow. And of course, it's all an
0: allegory, right? Right, right. And so why did you want to use this as sort of your the
1: basis for this project? So I think that... The way that Dante set up this poem um, is is, in a sense, a, a rhetorical and an allegorical device. And through that, he's saying, "I experienced the darkest thing I could imagine." And I came out on the other side, which is very important. but also, I was guided mm. by a great poet. And in a sense, he's saying poetry was my saving grace in a dark time. Um, and I, I felt like that, that underlying kind of rhetorical argument was one that I also wanted to make. And I felt that um, the Inferno could be a kind of guidepost for how to, I don't know, move through a situation that felt like it was really... Um, I don't know, a collapse of some sort. It was Mm. really quite terrifying. Yeah.
0: That, yeah, it it definitely was. And so when you started writing this, um, when you started doing the post on Instagram, you were writing over a period of time and posting as you wrote and like it wasn't every day but, but and so in the book you've got the dates and i'm assuming those are the dates of, of the original posts how,
1: correct yeah
0: how did like how was it like some months you posted quite a few some not so many how was that how did you decide what to do and how to do that
1: well you know like everyone else i was just trying to get through the days during a a really difficult time. And uh, I I honestly posted when I could, you know. Uh, Sometimes I was able to post a couple of times a week, and sometimes a few weeks would go by when I I really, like, you know, life was too chaotic, and I, I really just couldn't get to it. So.
0: And was each post written based, like, is it, does it follow the structure of the Inferno?
1: It does, actually. Um, So the Inferno was 33 cantos, and I loosely thought, well, I'll probably be doing something like a canto per post or two. Um, and I gave myself, you know, I, I always called it forty-ish posts. Okay. I didn't know exactly how many I would get to, but I figured, you know, I I, I tend to I tend to meander, you know, okay. I tend to, <laughs> I, I tend to not quite stick to the script every time, and I figured I'd I'd need more than thirty-three posts to get through the story, which turned out to be correct, mm-hmm. um, and it gave me a, a kind of it gave me a looseness to to use this text as I needed it, but uh, I didn't feel I had to be beholden to to the Inferno. I didn't feel that I needed to literally retell the Inferno. I could um, use it as inspiration. Sometimes I allude to things directly from the Inferno, but then sometimes I'm I'm telling a an anecdote of something that was really happening to me or that I was really witnessing out in the world.
0: Now, in the the book version, so not the augmented version, but the book, there are on each page, there are some words that are still completely legible, some that are partially Mm -hmm. legible, and some that are completely illegible. How did you make the decision what to leave permanent.
1: So, yeah, um, it was an interesting process. I I had the thought that I, I would like to create a way of decaying the text and the images that would work, that would have this quality as if memory was eroding them. Um, and uh, the the images are decayed in this with this milky quality that felt very much of how memory decays an image in your mind. Um, and but then when it came to thinking about how 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 might text decay in the mind, you know, I I was thinking that, you know, we remember images and text quite differently. I as a as a as a literary person. Um, And somebody who, when I read a particularly beautiful phrase, maybe I'll remember that phrase forever, you know, Um, even if I forget the rest of the text or the rest of the poem. And I I thought, well, that's the way that... The this text on the page is decayed, should also have that quality of of the way words decay in, in in the mind, where you know there might be phrases that are left over that seem particularly striking, even when everything else is gone. So I, I in fact we you know I created a an, an algorithm to to do that decay process, but before I ran the algorithm on on the text. I marked out some phrases um that I wanted to leave pristine, <laughs> so it was a little bit like uh the way erasure poetry works right um you're you're kind of deciding that certain things are gonna stay hmm. yeah
0: so and going back to the to the uh, lack of the letter e um from the story and which i it's like. <laughs> it's amazing to me that you could do that now this there was an author who wrote a 300-page novel entirely without the letter e that you sort of used as inspiration and can you tell me a little bit more about him and that project
1: yeah so georges perec a french author wrote an entire book in first he wrote it in french In French, the title is La Disparition, uh, without using the letter E. And the letter E in French is just as important, as prominent as it is in English. And then some brave soul um, (laughs) translated the entire 300-page novel into English, also without using the letter E, which to me seems astonishing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. and he did this in the, I believe it was the 60s or the 70s. Um, he was part of a movement called ULIPO, um, who were a, a group of authors. Many of them were also mathematicians, and they were really fascinated by the idea of constrained writing and creating artificial constraints that might um, like, do something else to the language uh, and, and likewise be expressive. What, what are some um, sure, other correct. examples of constraints that they that they used um gosh there's so many they're they're quite um you know uh somehow i am blanking out on many <laughs> of them but um you know literally anything can be a constraint uh if you've ever seen you know po- you know or poems where the beginning of each verse, uh, the letter, then spell something, you know, mm, vertically right. down. That can be a, con- a kind of constraint.
0: Or where the first word, the last word of each la- uh, verse becomes the first word of the next. Yes. That kind
1: things of Things like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. So a lot of poetic forms have these constraints in there. Yeah. 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 And yeah. But, but um, prose, you don't see it as often.
1: Or you might not know it's there. Uh, um, one technique that I, I started to adopt for my playwriting um, was inspired by them. And it was just, um, I sometimes sit down and um, will... Will give myself a constraint like no character can say more than four words at the same time. <laughs> so, what ends up happening, you know, is that you, you, get, you get a dialogue where things are very curt and, and cut off. Um, and it moves very quickly on the page and when it's spoken. And it has a very special kind of velocity to, to do that, to dialogue. Um, but it, it creates a, a mood. And an atmosphere. And uh, you might not know that that's what the author did when you're listening to it in, in, um, in a play.
0: Right, right. But you're,
1: you're hearing a certain kind of emotional effect that that has. Okay.
0: You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Kat Mustati, mm-hmm. and the title of the book, which is more than a book, is voidopolis. It's a, a mm-hmm. augmented reality digital book project, I guess you would call it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. what what exactly, you know, in your in your bio says <laughs> you're a transmedia playwright? What does that mean?
1: Yeah, I came to that phrase in order to try to capture the idea that although I very happily write for theater, for what you consider a standard theatrical format. Um, I've also written for live performance formats that are, um, you know, transmedia in nature. And to give you an example, um, I've written a play about people turning into lizards in which, which was staged as an augmented reality play where you're seeing both live performers and, you know these digital lizard avatars that they are um oh, corresponding wow. to wow <laughs> <laughs> so things like that where where you know it, it there's still very much um a narrative and that narrative is still very much theatrical or based in you know spoken dialogue and um but uh, there's other um, technologies that start to become involved.
0: Wow. In
1: the experience of it.
0: Okay. And <laughs> this TED talk about puppets and something about generative storytelling.
1: Can you summarize that
0: in a few <laughs>
1: sentences? <laughs> Well, um, generative AI, right? Artificial okay. intelligence. Okay. Uh, I think by now, I, I gave this talk in 2018, and at, at the time, the idea of generative AI was still pretty new to to most mm-hmm. lay people. Mm-hmm. But now, I think we all, we've all heard of ChatGPT, right? It's generating text, and there are also Mid Journey and other um, algorithms that are generating imagery. Um, well, all of those kind of generative um kinds of algorithms AI are in my mind of a of a piece like they they all do the same thing no matter what they're generating, either it's text or imagery um and I gave a TED talk about what what those things are and what I think they mean um it came from the question that I had. Uh, Back in 2018, as a poet, I think about language. I'm very precious about language and I take a long time to compose, you know, even a few lines of of poetry or prose. And uh, I started to wonder, you know, what does that, what does it mean that an algorithm can just start generating, you know, lines of poetry infinitely? you know, just in bulk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, What does that mean for me? (laughs) And what was your conclusion? Well, I started to, I I, I came to a thesis, uh, which I still hold to, I think it's still relevant, that, um, you know, we're tempted when, when an algorithm is generating all these lines of poetry, we're tempted to compare these generated lines to poetry or to our existing literary forms, and to say, well, is this is this literature or not? Um, and when when a set almost you know very similar algorithm is generating imagery, we are tending to compare it to our visual uh, media. Photography or painting, and saying, "Well, is this algorithm, you know, is this algorithmically generated image a good, you know, photograph or a good painting?" Um, because we're we're used to we're used to our existing media, and so we're 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 ending up making these like really super weird comparisons of thinking of AI algorithms as artists. Because they're doing something that we associate with artists doing, um, and I felt like, well, that that feels very nonsensical. So the thesis I came to was, you know, it's it's nonsensical to to talk about these algorithms being creative. Why don't we talk about the algorithms themselves being a kind of you know artifact being a kind of as if they were puppets is, is the comparison that I came to if you start thinking of an algorithm as a kind of puppet some things start to fall into place about what they are and what what their so called creative output can can mean uh, for example like puppets they are set into motion by humans but they are not human and they're not human like but they are created by humans, and like puppets, they can be thought of as artistic objects. So the algorithm itself can be this object that is that has a behavior, you know, uh, that behavior mimics human behavior, but maybe it does so imperfectly, just like a puppet, you know, kind of can made, be made to dance, mm-hmm. but it's not like a human dancing it's doing something dance like it's jiggling around you know and you you don't necessarily predict exactly where and how this puppet is going to jiggle around um just like you can't totally predict the behavior of of an algorithm like this within certain parameters but you can kind of pre- you know like you can say well you know uh, an algorithm that's been programmed to generate, you know, imagery isn't going to start generating text all of a sudden, right? So, so there is a kind of, there is a kind of, um, you know, container of behavior that you can ascribe to it. But, uh, but it's unpredictability isn't really earth shattering. It's, it's just, uh, (laughs) it's within a, it's within a range, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. And, And so why don't we think of these algorithms, and there are many kinds of algorithms with many kinds of behaviors, as um, kind of artistic objects in their own right. Now, we're not used to thinking of algorithms as artistic objects, but that's just because they're very new technology, and we're not used to thinking of new technologies. I mean, it takes us a, a bit of time to learn what a new technology is and how to think about it just like when you know when photography and film first came around in the previous century um they seemed so novel that people couldn't wrap their heads around it i mean the idea of like a moving picture you know was like Mm. you know earth shattering yeah
0: yeah i'm sure that you know originally with photography people were like well is this as good as a painting?
1: Of course. <laughs> and of course. And and also what's so interesting is uh when photography first came around, people were freaked out. They they were like, This can be used for propaganda. Mm-hmm. This can be used to fake so many things. And the idea of like what's truth and what's false suddenly was like uh up in the air right and there
0: are still people you know various religions and so forth who don't who don't want to be photographed they think it steals your soul in some way
1: yeah Yeah. which you know maybe it does (laughs)
0: maybe it does (laughs) now you used it says a modified gpt2 text generator to help with the getting the e out so how did that Mm -hmm. work And what is a a GPT-2 text generator?
1: Right, right. So back in, you know, back in (laughs) the dark ages of 2020, (laughs) before chat GPT, there were like uh, earlier versions of these text generators. And there was GPT, and then there was GPT-2, which was an improved version. That was the version that I had access to at the time. That was what was circulating and it existed, you know. It was it was uh, put out by a big corporation, and you mostly used it as it was given to you. But I, you know, I I come from mathematics. I've written soft, software before, so I I'm a big believer in taking these algorithms and kind of futzing with them. <laughs> uh-huh. So, and uh, I I was inspired by by these constrained writing forms to say, well, why don't we take one of these text generators and kind of futz with it and give it some additional constraints, some additional rules for how it's it's generating text. So one of the rules that I tried to give it was, uh, why don't you, when you're spitting out words in a sequence, if you find a word that uh, has the letter E, discard it and keep trying till you get to a word that doesn't contain the letter E. And in that way, uh, you modify this text generator to only, you know, make sentences that don't contain the letter E.
0: So you would tell the text generator, you know, what needed to happen in a particular Paragraph and ask it to generate text without the letter E or would you give it more specific even more specific uh, prompt?
1: yeah you're 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 effectively adding some extra software, some extra lines of code okay. to what it what is already doing and you're telling you it's behaving otherwise exactly as it was made, but with some additional constraint. So, just like in a in a chat g p. t generator that you're used to using now,
0: no no I'm not you, uh, but... <laughs> <go ahead.
1: laughs> that one is <laughs> used to using you uh you give it a prompt, you know you like give it the beginning of a sentence or something that it has to complete for you okay, okay. and uh this was I would use it in the same way. Except that the result it was giving me had some these additional constraints that I gave it. Okay, so you know
0: the post that you wrote, how much of it is sort of your words versus the text generator's
1: words? Yeah, that's a great question. It is, I would say, pretty much me composing. Um, What I used the generator for was initially to start generating a bunch of text that didn't contain the letter E Mm. Um, because that was a really great way for me before I had really gotten used to um, composing in this way or even wrapping my head around how to compose in this way it was great to see um, like large amounts of text like this. And initially I was picking out phrases that I thought were especially interesting that it had generated uh, with this constraint and using those to compose with, Uh but in terms of, yeah. So in terms of the, you know, the actual storytelling and the actual narrative arc and the, the choices made there, You know, I would say it's still me.
0: Kat, could you read a little bit from Voidopolis for us?
1: Um, I would love to, like you, I have uh, have to open up the app.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just give me one minute. For those who don't have the book in front of them, the essay is in the book permanently. You can read that without the
1: app. That's right. Yes, I will read from uh, I will read from the July 29th entry. Great. Dido is practically gliding through a malignant nightclub air, and joins us in a nook with a springy couch and gold and black tatting. A song of agony wafts up from a music pit downstairs. Sprung and crazy, Dido talks longingly about a guy worth dying for, plying us with vodka, but soon abandons us in pursuit of him. As starlings flit this way and that in rough winds, so Dido ducks back among that crowd, full of hilarity, dancing joyfully. How is a carnal mass of such proportion not hazardous? Don't worry, you can't catch anything, Nikita says, noting my agitation at so many individuals without masks, frolicking indoors, mixing spit body to body, swirling in a tight-knit flock. A liquid pearl of sound, as if from a fountain, rings in my quickly dimming mind. Losing all capacity for sitting upright, I soon slip into an unbound oblivion.
0: Thank you. And now a little bit from the essay at the beginning of the book.
1: Yeah. Great. Life in New York City in the early months of 2020 was an eerie mix of the inane and the apocalyptic. One April afternoon, I paused in the middle of a jog in Central Park, overcome by a sudden gust of sobbing, I had become aware of the sound of ambulance sirens multiplied by three coming from the west, east and south sides of the park simultaneously, each at different intensities according to their proximity to me. A sparse laden drizzle had started and the jogging path, usually crowded, was deserted. I recovered and resumed my run within a minute or two, certain no one had noticed flanked on both sides by stately magnolia trees with blossoms as ample and abundant as a throng of outstretched hands. Each of those wailing metal boxes was a human life in crisis, representing someone too ill with the novel coronavirus to get to a hospital on their own. Each sickened person, I thought, becomes an epicenter of fear and sadness unto themselves, spiraling outward to the family and friends left with questions and grief and fear of their own. Will they come out of the hospital alive? What happens now? It was those triple sirens that stopped me short, a panic chorus already enormous for the three people whose crises they amplified. The sound might as well have been magnified by a thousand, and I remember thinking someone incoherently Thousands of people. Thousands. If you had paid attention to the alarming news in January that Wuhan, an entire city of 11 million people, had been locked down by Chinese authorities, and then in February noted the shocking number of deaths reported in northern Italy, both due to the spread of the same novel coronavirus, you might do some back-of-napkin math. How long could it possibly take for the same virus to reach New York City? Once it does, how many infections will it take before the inevitable first death? In an international hub, densely populated and with notoriously packed subways, how many links in the chain of transmission and death would it take to reach my own household? Would I die too? Out of an abundance of caution read the hastily made signs in shop windows as one after another shuttered their doors. On March 1st, the city confirmed its first case. By mid-March, the mayor had ordered schools and non-essential businesses closed. Times Square emptied, and the rare pedestrians would circumvent each other fearfully on the street. Stay-at-home orders were posited as a temporary precaution to prevent community spread. But were we to measure this temporary in days, in months, in years, the future vanished. In its place, a kind of suspended animation to be endured as a liminal expanse of hours among the contents of our individual apartments. The number of cases started doubling every few days, and then daily. By April, a New Yorker was dying every two minutes. In the inferno, the universe of justice Dante depicts is utterly impersonal, like a machine. Every single resident of hell is meted out of punishment, often a physically gruesome one, according to a strict hierarchy of their misdeeds in life. Even those whom Dante loves, like the poet Virgil, cannot be saved. In the Middle Ages, when Dante was writing, society still believed humankind at the mercy of larger forces, those forces invariably being divine. In the modern world, we understand human suffering as largely human-made, the result of war, systemic inequality, a belligerent disregard for our ecosystems. We no longer fear gods, but each other. Yet that spring, as New York City became the epicenter of a pandemic that would kill millions across the globe in its grim but inevitable outward trajectory, I recognized a similar implacable force in the calamity unfolding around me. Collectively and all at once, an entire city had been propelled back to a mindset out of the Middle Ages. The virus, a poorly understood and impersonal force, was moving from body to body, wreaking havoc on each body, irrespective of who deserved it and who didn't. There would be other epicenters, but by being among the first, New York became singularly isolated in its misery, much the way Dante's Hell was a place removed from the society of the living. Uh, John Frechero, in his foreword to the English translation of the Inferno by Robert Pinsky, observes with a dryness that seemed particularly poignant in those early months of 2020. Few of Dante's readers have derived much satisfaction from the triumph of this somewhat anonymous justice. I certainly did not.
0: Thank if, you. I think we should, we need mm-hmm. to end there because we're out of time. Okay. So that was Kat Mustati reading from Voidopolis. And, uh, there's, this is really a fascinating book, unlike anything else that I've ever seen. And I want to thank you for being with us today to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. And we always close with the quote. So I looked up some Dante quotes and it was um, and this one isn't directly relevant to your book, but it's one that I really liked. And it's he said, he who sees a need and waits to be asked for help is as unkind as if he had refused it. Hmm. So that's food for thought.
1: Mm <laughs> Indeed. Yeah.
0: And uh, do you have any final words for our listeners today?
1: Um, I would say, yeah, I I hope that um, what anyone might take away from a project like this is the idea that even in the middle of collapse, there's a way of resisting collapse uh, by speaking about it by Uh, describing it by believing in, in the power of language to change reality Thank
0: you and see you all next week on Writer's Voices